the majority of homeless people are people who have suffered some type of traumatic or multiple traumatic wounds or traumas in their life and they did not receive the mental health, the spiritual health, the physical health support that they needed and they have a break in that family connection. How many times have we asked a homeless person their name? Are we afraid to acknowledge that we may be the solution to this complex human dilemma? How do we move from a transactional mentality to a relational approach? And what can that pivot reveal to us about other aspects of our lives? In today's episode, nonprofit founder, author, speaker and advocate Jess Echeverry shares her own lived experience of the streets, how she was formed through it, and how one healthy relationship ultimately rescued her. They need a healthy relationship. They need somebody to say, it doesn't matter what you do, you're worth something. You're, you're, you have dignity that nobody can take away from you. And I want to have a relationship with you that shows you just how much you're loved and how much you're worth. That is what heals homelessness. That is what helps somebody come out of that alternate reality and start to believe something else. All humans are sacred. If we open our hearts to genuine relationships with those around us, we can play our rightful role in a solution that dignifies human life and helps redefine what community really means. This is Living the Call. So I've been wanting to do this with you for a long time. I wanted, I've wanted you here in the studio to record with me. Not just cleaning it. Not just cleaning it, or or setting it up. <laughs> or setting it up. Somebody who was it? Oh, it was um, it was uh, John Sorensen who was here last week, and he's like, "I really like your studio." And I said, "Thank you." Of course, you know, pretending that it was me who had built it, but knowing full well that, that yet was again, me. yeah, yet that again, was it was you. So you asked me a second ago, "What are we going to talk about?" Yes. And we could talk about anything, but one thing that I thought was really important and that we've been talking about for a while is this idea, especially lately, this idea of homelessness. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about homelessness and I want to talk about the work that you have led specifically in this area. But before we get started, what I want to do is kind of set the stage a little bit. I want to set the stage because, and you know me better than anybody, you know that I'm a time and place person. Mm -hmm. And so I know that God has us here in this time and place for a reason. Amen. And just to set the stage of where we are with respect to homelessness, here's what I would say, and then I'd, I'd love for you to respond. Homelessness has always been an issue, right? Always been something that we've contended with, not just in this country, but in other countries, people that are displaced, people that don't have a home. All that's true. But yes. this time and place right now, we're in Los Angeles, 2021, coming out of COVID, the Supreme Court just last week ruled that the original date for the um, for the moratorium on eviction is going to stay. So July 31st will be the the end of the moratorium federally, mm -hmm. and then the state of California extended theirs to like September, or whatever. But whether it's the next 30 days or the next hundred, the next 90 days, mm -hmm. we're going to hit an end to this eviction moratorium. We've got the backlash of all of the economic problems with COVID. We have um, a situation with people that have been displaced, that there are drug issues with, all these kind of things. And there's a sense of urgency now around this issue that hasn't existed before. So mm -hmm. I think that like we're right now at a very important point. 
in the whole issue of homelessness. And I think that that because of that particular sense of urgency, we're all called in a particular way to address this maybe differently than we have before. I don't know. But there's just a sense of urgency in the U.S. right now that hasn't existed before. Okay. Do you agree with that? I think that homelessness has become more visible. I think it's a lot harder to ignore it because now encampments, tents, the home, the the average homeless person is right outside your front door now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it used to be kind of encapsulated in these little neighborhoods, maybe um, closer to downtown, speaking specifically in Los Angeles, Skid Row. But I think every city has their area where there's a a larger homeless population. Um, And I think what's happened is that's been dispersed. Why? Um, Well, my own personal experience is what usually disperses homeless people, um, unhoused people, are um, usually they've been mandated to move for some reason or another. Now, my personal opinion is that when COVID kicked in and they were concerned about the spread of the COVID virus among the homeless population, they started sheltering. So um, because everybody was home, the recreation centers, LA County Parks and Rec, all their recreation centers opened up and basically became these shelters. And so they brought the majority of the homeless population in and sheltered them. So uh, I always joke around people where it's like, I think it's very funny, like in a pandemic, we were able to house all the homeless, but now we're no longer in a pandemic. And so these homeless people have been dispersed in a sense. So somebody who may have been on the street somewhere between here and Skid Row got moved into a recreation center, let's say in Venice, and now is no longer near Skid Row, now has been dispersed into the local area. Is that an example of necessity as the mother of invention or is just amazing luck that we figured out how to house the homeless during the middle of a pandemic? Or is this because we had no choice and we had some available inventory? Like what drove that? No, I think politics drives all of that, unfortunately. I think that we've always had the ability to shelter our homeless which is different than actually helping our homeless. So I think that the city, county, state has full capacity to actually put a roof over everybody's head, Um, whether it be in a gymnasium or a tiny home village. um, We absolutely have the capacity to do that. Is that actually in service to the homeless person? No, it's not. Why is it not? Well, I mean, gosh. there are basic needs that, that that humans have, right? Obviously, shelter, food, safety. Those are our three basic ones. Um, and when you're homeless, you're in what's called survival mode. So you're everything in you, even physiologically, right? Your, your cortisone levels, your adrenal level, like all of the uh, your adrenaline, everything is at a heightened state. So you're in this thing called survival mode. And when you're in survival mode, your life um, consists of doing that next thing to survive. So it's not like a house person where they wake up in the morning, oh, they decide what kind of coffee they're going to have, you know, what latte, you know, at Starbucks and, you know, what to put on for that day, right? It's it's that's not survival mode. That's normal mode with, you know, for lack of a better term. Um so survival mode when you have survival mode and you're in survival mode for a certain amount of time, it becomes a way of living. And your body adapts and adjusts to it. We're human beings. We were made to survive. We're made to live. So our body does everything in order to stay alive. 
Um, and that's physically, mentally, psychologically, and even spiritually. So that's what a homeless person is actively living on the streets. So depending on how long a homeless person is out there, you can put a roof over their head, but if they've been out there for a certain amount of time, you're removing something that they know that has become comfortable, that has become a way of life for them. So to us, it's, oh, if we put them in this tiny home village house, then they've got shelter and they're safe. Yes, that's true. But if you don't replace that with a form of mental health concern or relationship, which is even more important, you know, that accompanying and journeying them through what got them on the street to begin with, when you put that shelter over their head, it opens up inside of them the wound that may have been something that attributed to them becoming homeless in the first place. Where does that rank, that insight of helping and housing are can be two different things? Where does that rank as an insight for you in the 20 years plus that you've been serving the homeless? Is that... Is that the top thing that you think people maybe get wrong or don't understand? Where, where does that insight rank relative to the work that you've done for the last two decades in this area? Yeah. So what I've actually seen, and in, in this is with L.A. City in particular, I've seen them probably about eight to 10 years ago catch on with the whole housing first aspect, right? That mentality that you know, don't, they don't have to be sober. They don't have to be off drugs. Just get a roof over their head. Let's just get it started there. I completely understand that approach. It still lacks fullness. Okay. It is, it's a great first step because even with Sofisa, the first thing we do with a homeless family is we offer them a motel for the night to get them safe. So that, in that aspect, let's just put a roof over their head and then we will do the next step. I do agree with that. I think that's absolutely vital and necessary. It's the next step part that's become a problem um, with, you know, city, county, state stuff. And that's that next step requires a relationship, not a transaction. Where are we now in terms of people who are involved in the movement who want to help? Do you think that there is there help about just getting people, you know, kind of a, a variation of not in my backyard? I want people to just be out of my zone or out of my sight so I don't have to deal with it so I'm prepared to help. Or is it is it more altruistic? Is it more connected now than it's been in the past? Again, using the frame of reference of the 20 years that you've been doing this, do people feel like they're more connected to the humans behind this now or less connected to the people that are experiencing homelessness? I think that the change that we've seen at Sofisa, especially during COVID, and it's what, what COVID brought about was the desire to be more connected. The, the, the reaching out to us at Sofisa and saying, you know, what COVID did is it eliminated the opportunity for someone to sign up somewhere, stand behind a table, pass something out, and check the box saying that they volunteered, which makes them feel good and it helps someone. And all that's fantastic and wonderful. And that still needs to continue. But I think what COVID did is it forced people to kind of say, hey, you can't go out there in the world and do something on this big, large scale. You're just going to have to do something yourself. And for me, for and especially at Sofisa, that's been the benefit of COVID and and um, serving the homeless is that it's it's kind of sparked this desire within the individual person 
the normal, again, lack of a better term, community member to kind of look around and see the homeless and say, gosh, there's got to be something that I can do. And that's true. Where there wasn't an opportunity, I don't think, before for just the regular average person to kind of look and say, wait, what can I personally do? What drove that? Was that just people like having more time on their hands because they're stuck at home and they're just, I really want to get involved now? Is it because it was so much more visible that now it's, I'm going to Ralph's or the corner store or whatever it is and I can see the tents and I see the people in a way that I never did before? What drove in COVID this desire to want to do more? Honestly, I think it, if I had to guess, I, I would say it was fear. I think that number one, people had more time on their hands. They had um, time to discern, time to ponder, time to think about things. I mean, <laughs> look, you know how many backyards were remodeled during COVID? Or, you know, it's Including like people, people had time to do things. And when you, And again, that's actually exactly what I'm talking about. When you are housed... And especially in a pandemic, you have time to think about, to ponder, to kind of what Sophisa says, stare into the fire, you know, and, and, and let your thought and your creativity and your imagination go. And I think that's what happened. I think that's what happened to the normal person. They had time to actually think about the things that were important in their life. Here we are, we're facing a pandemic. A lot of people are filled with fear, if not the majority of people. And that, I think, shook a lot of people to their core and really got them thinking, wait, I have to do something. I have to do something good. I, maybe a lot of people look back at their lives and said, wait, I haven't been taking up on this opportunity to really help the next person. And I think that a lot of that happened, at least that's the response that Sophisa got during COVID um, was, what can I do just me? You know, can you help me figure that out? There are some people from a theological perspective who kind of think of COVID as potentially a large chastisement, right? This is God kind of chastising his children and bringing us all, drawing us all to account. There's another school that looks at it in a way as a kind of great mercy, right? This idea that we all were able to go through this, but despite having gone through all of this turmoil, God used all of that as a way to draw us nearer to him, as a way, to your point, to draw us closer to one another, how, how do you view view that? Is it a mixed bag? Where do you net out on that? What was happening spiritually during COVID? I have no idea. <laughs> you mean you can't speak for God? What's wrong with you? I mean, <laughs> I have no idea what God was doing. I have no idea what God is doing right now. You know, I think our job is just to, you know, look over to the person next to us and be available to them in whatever capacity we can be available to them to do the next good and righteous thing and to continue in faith that God's got this, you know? Like, yeah, the pandemic was scary. We lost a lot of people, and a lot of people um, suffered greatly during it. But, you know, God is a good God, and in all suffering, you know, it all works for the good of those who love him. And, and, and there's so much good that has come out of COVID as well. And I think that now, post-pandemic, we really need to focus and, and draw out and share with people what those good things are. One of the downsides of having your wife on your podcast is that you know all the answers already. <laughs> but nevertheless, I have to ask because it's always, it really is truly great to hear it every time you say it, but why is this important to you? Why is this your, your mission, helping homeless brothers mm -hmm. and sisters? 
You do know the answer to that. <laughs> I at least know the start of it. Yeah. The answer may have a little flourish every time, a different one, but. Yeah, no, I am a previously homeless person, which in the homeless services industry is um, called someone with lived experience. So I'm someone with lived experience of homelessness among many, many other things and what comes along with living um, on the streets. And um, I experienced that life, you know, drugs, prostitution, trap house, homelessness, motels, shelters, all of it. Um, It's a part of my life that I've, I've really, I've kept to myself about mostly um, just even finishing my first book, Dazzled, um, there's not really much in there about my, my time being homeless. Um, I'm working on a second book now called Enormous Lives, and that is going to be the book kind of where I feel God is calling it all out to share in hopes that, you know, it will benefit other people, not just homeless people, but just your average normal person, you know, the, the, the regular person in your community who can really benefit from knowing the personal side of of being homeless. So here you are. You are the executive director of Sofisa. You're a leader in ministry to, homeless, to our homeless brothers and sisters. You're a leader in a variety of other ministries. You definitely run our household, so you're a leader <laughs> in that regard. But here you are. You're this person who's been transformed, who has been you know, healed, led along uh, your way by God. And so people look at you and they can't see that homeless young person who was on the street for years. And I wonder if you can maybe just tell people a little bit about what that's like. What's it like to be on the street? Maybe maybe the transition from not being on the street to being on the street. How, what does that feel like? Hell. <laughs> it feels like hell. I mean, um, it's the opposite of what I'm living now. I, I, I know that. Um, look, a lot of people end up homeless because they've suffered some type of wound or multiple wounds in their childhood and um, didn't actually receive the support that they really needed in order to heal and to survive, in a sense, those wounds. And that led to possibly running away, like in my case, running away at 14. Um, I was molested and raped, came from a broken home, you know, a bunch of divorces and step-parents. There's a lot of instability in the household. So, you know, all of those things can contribute to just inside of someone feeling like they have no worth that, you know, they really shouldn't be here. And that's, that's, the streets are where those people belong in a sense. Like that's where we go. Um, There's usually a a break in family. That's um, the number one cause for homelessness is that break in family ties, even like just that connection. You know, it's like, even if your family doesn't want to house you, just even being able to pick up the phone and have that conversation with them. So usually there's a break in that in the family where you don't have that relationship or connection anymore. You're kind of just left out in the world to kind of deal with things on your own. And it's it's hard. It's um you have to survive. And and you know, and when you're out there you do whatever you can to survive. 
you were human beings. We, we were created to be in relationship with one another in community. And so that's what people who are homeless do naturally as well. It's why you see encampments and parks, you know, you see one homeless tent go up. They're like, oh, there's one up on so-and-so street. And next, you know, three weeks later, they're like, oh, my gosh, there's four more next to it. <laughs> Everybody's got neighbors. <laughs> that, <laughs> that always makes me laugh. It's like, well, what do you expect? We're human beings, you know. They're, they're, they've You build a community within the homeless community, and there's different, you know, familial groups within that as well and different hierarchies. Higher. Hierarchies, yes. Mm -hmm. I always have a problem with that word. Thank you. Um, But it's the only true way I know how to describe it that I've ever really described it is that it's an absence of God. It's it's what happens in hell. It's it's the devil's playground. There's There's definitely a spiritual dimension to all this, and obviously we've talked about it, but the idea that the home is a physical place and it is made of more than just you know brick and cement and drywall it has a spiritual dimension to it but it nevertheless is shelter and there is something that is um you know transcendent and in a way supernatural about the home that protects the individual right mm-hmm. in its ideal scenario sometimes homes mm-hmm. can not not be that but you know in a general sense it protects the the person on a supernatural level, when you are not at home, when you live out in the street, when you're out in the open, there's obviously the vulnerability that's physical, which people can sort of understand, but there's also a spiritual vulnerability to your point, right? There is, you're not protected, surrounded by these kind of bonds of family that, that, that protect you, that are sort of a shield, right? That, that kind of keep. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, look, that's, that's, (laughs) I always share this, but it's like God could have, you know, breathed his breath, snapped his finger, blinked his eyes or clicked his heels and and given us our savior at 33 years old, ready to redeem us, you know, but he didn't, you know, he sent his son um, into the womb of a woman who was betrothed to a man who created a family and who raised, you know, who was born and was raised in a family. That's for us. That's not for God. That's for us. That's for us to be able to look at, to learn from, and to understand that that's where we learn who God is first. And within that, that is where we find our sheltering, our nourishment, our our love, our our um, our education, right? Our understanding of even our own identity, who we are as a person. And so obviously if there's a breakdown in that, then that wounds the person, right? It, it, it deforms, you know, what God has called us into in order to know him and love him and to serve him to the best of our ability. So, and that's what you see. There, I have not yet met a homeless person who has not had some type of deformation of family ever period, including myself. How did home factor in you leaving the life? Wow. Um, I wanted to make my own home. Um, I was, I was, I was a very determined, I was full of drive and initiative. Um, I was the only one in my homeless group, um, homeless family that I was in that didn't do drugs or drink alcohol. 
I actually credit the fact that I was raped and molested. And because of that, I, I, I didn't want to be under any type of influence so that I would always have full control of what was happening to my body. Those attacks didn't happen on the street, to be clear. No, those happened before um, I became a runaway at 14 and then homeless at 16. Um, so when I hit the street, I was kind of an anomaly um, in a sense where I didn't do drugs to numb the pain. I didn't drink, you know, to to be a part of everything else that was going on. I was probably more of the the caretaker, the one who would be there for, you know, for the aftermath of what just needs to be done in order to survive out there. You know, keeping everybody together, making sure we were all organized and you know just yeah they, they, everybody has a personality and, and that was my personality and i i thank god every day you know i thank him every day that i i didn't do drugs out there and i didn't drink because you know i have dear friends who have lost their lives because of it i have i have you know parents in homeless families that sofisa serves now that are f trying to fight that that devil addiction who who are beautiful amazing people and and um and it's terrible it's terrible and so this family that you had on the street and we're going to get back to how home helped you draw out of that life on the street but just quickly the family that you encountered on the streets how did you come across them how did uh they become family Actually, my first night homeless, I was on. I was in the sand on the beach. It was the only place I knew to go to, and I, I just, you know, the darkness of night is just it. There's something really different when you're homeless with darkness of night. For me, in particular, it meant, you know, bad stuff was going to happen. It, you know, it, in homelessness, that's where everybody goes crazy in a sense. Like that's where all the stuff happens is when the sun goes down. And so waiting for the sun to rise is, is, is it's what keeps a lot of homeless people going. Um, is that a, is it, is it hope? It is. The, the sunrise? That, well, yeah. Um, for me, it was. My first night was in the sand. I was on the beach. It was the east coast of the United States. So, you know, so the sun rises right up out of the water and the ocean. And so I just dug my spot in there and, you know, slept with one eye open, just hoping nobody touched me, nobody robbed me, nobody, like, just I was petrified. And I was just waiting to see that first glimpse of, of sun come up out of that water and and there it was and it was <laughs> it was one of the most amazing things i've ever felt and and after that first night i i felt in my just in the core of my being like oh, i got this i can do this all right i got through i got through day 1 right and so i was starving i was hungry um there was a mcdonald's where close to where i was and i was digging through the trash in the mcdonald's there and there was a group of other people my age kind of hanging around me, staring at me. I thought they were gonna jump me. How old were you? Uh, 16. You thought they were gonna jump you? I thought they were gonna jump me. You know, here I am, I'm fresh on the street and I got a brand new bag, basically, of my stuff and that's that's prime, <laughs> that's prime jumping material right there, so. Were you conscious of the way that you looked, of how you appeared to other people at that moment or are you just like not even thinking about that? In other words, you said, here I am fresh on the street. Did you, were you aware that you looked 
fresh on the street? Was that even a thing? Yes, I was aware because I'd been running away since 14. So um, since 14, I'd so been, in, what it looked like. I'd been in group homes. I've heard stories. I never hit the street before, but I met many people in group homes and, and those types of situations when you run away and they take you back home, you run away again a couple of times and they just put you in a group home for a little while until things calm down in your house. Um, and so I've heard stories, you know, obviously being bunked with other girls and listening to all their you know, talk, you, you learn, you learn a lot and you pick it up. So I knew that I looked fresh and that's one of the things I was most scared of, especially at night. Um, and so that's, yeah, I thought they were going to jump me, but, um, they didn't. One of them walked over to me and was just like, you know, you're hungry. You just, you just hit the street, basically just starting that conversation with me. And I was nervous. I was scared, but he was like, just come and join us. We'll show you, you know, you're hungry. It was a guy. It was a guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most of them are guys. Um, there were only two other girls in our group. Um, How many, roughly? There was eight of us. And there were two other girls, and we lost one girl. Um, she left the group. I don't know what happened to her. But um, but they were mostly guys. How soon after you interact with them in McDonald's are you learning about their story? Are you hearing who they are? Does that happen quickly? Does that take forever? Immediately. Yeah, no, immediately. But doesn't just it's not like you and I sitting down having a conversation. It's um it's over smoke. It's um, hey, let's go in here and let's steal a pack of cigarettes and you know, hey, when you know, one time when I was like seven and my uncle came over and blah 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 blah. So it's like different when you're doing different stuff, that's what that's how it comes out. But that's not with all of them, you know. There were a couple of them that never said anything about anything ever. How were you? Were you somebody who shared easily? No, no. Because of that need to be in control? Yes, yeah. No, I was very guarded. Hmm. I was very afraid that, because listen, the other thing about being on the street is the more you share, the more vulnerable you become. And I knew being fresh out there that I was super vulnerable already. So uh, it was the hard exterior. I I got into fights, razor blades, just throwing, like just, it, it was, it, you have to, my thing was the more crazy I act, the less people will mess with you. And it's absolutely true. So, um, and I learned that really quick. I remember the first time I went into the shelter, Covenant House down there, and it was my first morning there. They pulled me in. It was just part of the circuit that our group learned how to do. So only one or two of us would go in the shelter. The rest would stay on the streets, and then we'd feed them. You know, we'd get stuff and then feed our people on the streets from the stuff that we'd get in the shelters. So it was a way of kind of sustaining the whole group. But I went in and... In the middle of the night, you always go in the middle of the night too because it throws the people in the shelter off and you end up getting much more undivided attention and more stuff. But um, yeah, so it was breakfast the next morning and three girls came over ready to kind of lay down the law and you know show me who was in charge. And it was that was actually the first encounter where I knew that if I didn't go big and go hard that people were just going to do what they wanted with me. And that was an absolute no based on my history. So There's parallels to that dynamic and what happens to people in prison too. Is there, is there, have you ever thought about that? This idea of like trying to sort of assert, you know, you're not a pushover. There's some sense of dominance. 
I, I don't know. It could be a total aside. I just thought about no, that. No, I mean, you've obviously never been in a shelter. <laughs> I haven't. Shelter, prison, it's very similar. I mean, there's homeless people that won't even go near a shelter for those reasons. But um, so that means it's it's better on the street for them in their perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Depending on who's around them, you know, you have. And then there's you know, there's people on there's there's people other homeless people. There's gangs on the street. There's people that you know to stay away from. You know, you learn really quick who to, who to, who you can talk to, who you can't mess around with. And it's, you know, it's those that end up taking drugs and, and doing alcohol and drugs and all kinds of stuff to just numb their pain that end up getting mixed up with all of the wrong people. And so... That's another thing that people, in in my experience, and going through the things that you've taught me, that people get wrong about this is the idea of the drug or the mentally ill people, right? Mm-hmm. It's just so easy... And in a way, it's kind of silly, right? It's so easy to say, oh, they're mentally ill or on drugs. Like that would release you from trying to help you help them, right? But <laughs> but it is. The, so like it's silly anyway, but it's also incorrect, right? Yes. It's incorrect in terms of percentage of people who get to the street having already had a major drug problem and or people who are on the street who are certifiably ill psych- psychiatrically. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there's different categories, absolutely. So there's a very, very small percentage where it is somebody who has a clinical, you know, psychological disorder, bipolar, schizophrenia, you know, very small percentage where they're an adult now, they're off their meds, and they have no familiar, they no, have no family connection, and so all they have is the streets, and they're hard to reach. That's, I think, that's where people go to when they think of homeless people immediately, and that happens to be the smallest percentage of homeless in, in the homeless population. Um, and then you do have another percentage of of homeless who who end up having just a really rough time in life, maybe still have some of those family connections but just can't hold down a job. They have a substance abuse issue, you know, whether it's alcohol or marijuana or some light drug or something like that, where they used to be functional, but now they've become dysfunctional and they can no longer hold their stuff together. That's usually when family cuts them because they just not getting the help that they need and they're not listening to family. Right. And so you do have another small percentage of homeless where that's them, right? They've been cut off for their family, they won't stop using, and now they've hit the streets because they have nowhere else to go, and they're adults. You know, the majority of homeless people are people who have suffered some type of traumatic or multiple traumatic wounds or traumas in their life, and they did not receive the mental health, the spiritual health, the physical health support that they needed, and they have a break in that family connection. It's like a long-term PTSD in a way. It's absolutely PTSD. I mean, I was diagnosed with PTSD. So, I mean, every homeless person has PTSD, whether they have it before they get out there or whether it happens once they hit the streets. So once a homeless person hits the streets, the the magic number is 90 days, right? So it's, it's usually around 90 days. If you can pull someone off the streets within the first 90 days of them hitting the streets, then the chances of recovering them and helping them and them not being homeless again are up in the 90 percentile. It's, it's huge. After 90 days, then it's the streets. It's, 
you have to choose. You have to choose between which life you're trying to live. And you can't live a normal life on the street. So you, there's something that just, it, it happens, right? Where you've now chosen, you've got to survive out here. And so this is what you're going to do. And you've kind of given up on the, the normalcy of life that you used to know. And now this becomes who you are and what you're doing. That's the hardest thing to break. Once that happens, then you're talking about long-term rehabilitation for someone when they're coming, when you when you bring them off the streets and try and help them out of homelessness. Are most people's interaction with people where they come away saying, oh, this guy's nuts, just somebody interacting with somebody who's really wounded, who's putting, you know, who you're not really seeing who they are, but you're seeing that projection that they have in order to maintain their kind of safety. Is that fair? How oh, absolutely. You... Yeah, that's completely fair to say. You know, the, the 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 Jessica that hit the streets on that first night is a completely different Jessica than, you know, six months in, 18 months in, three years in, even four years in. You know, those are all different Jessicas. And the longer the time spent out there, the deeper the original, the, 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 the person it gets buried, right? And then all these experiences and traumas and requirements of living on the street kind of surround you and just encompass you and build these huge walls around you. And that's what needs to be torn down in order to kind of rescue the person who's in there. Right. But that's a requirement in order to live on the street or you will end up, you know, trying to commit suicide, ODing. I attempted suicide twice. You know, it's it, it if you don't succumb to it, then it kills you in a sense. And that's what we see. That's the mental health crisis that we see out there. It's not that these people are crazy. It's just they have been forced to live in a in a in an environment that requires so much of them that it becomes too much, right? So, you know, the example that I give is people who are in comas for a long term, right? Who, who have been, you know, who have this, sometimes they end up going into this, this alternate reality, right? And it's what the body does, again, in order to survive. We were created for life. Our body is gonna do whatever it can to keep breathing and keep living. And that's what happens out on the street. It's it's kind of like this alternate reality that we create for ourselves because that's the hope that we can give ourselves. You know, there's lots of instances in that. There's, you know, Christopher, a homeless guy in the park right now. You know, he's a great guy. He's clean. He keeps his tent nice. He'll show you all his stuff. He'll hold a, a normal conversation with you. And then 20 minutes in, he's telling you that his girlfriend's in you know, in a different country collecting her $28 million inheritance and she'll be back soon for him. So it's like, yeah, if if you're somebody who hears that, you're going to go, oh, this guy's nuts, right? This guy's crazy. No, Christopher has created an alternate reality for him to keep himself alive, right? The question is, how do we break? How do we pull somebody back from that alternate reality. And that alternate reality in the case of Christopher only manifests itself in like a couple little things, right? In other words, you can go the whole half hour and 30 seconds of it will be, wait a minute, what did he just say? And the rest of it, it's perfectly, perfectly normal. normal. Yeah, yeah. And so when when people say it's a mental health, you know, that all of them are mentally ill, it's a, yes, but no, 
right? Yes, they are suffering mentally. They're suffering physically, mentally, and spiritually, and they do need that help. And so, yes, they do need those services, but it's not they're crazy. They need to be on drugs. You know, they have this type of psychological disorder, which is, I think, what people immediately go to and assume when you say, when you hear somebody, maybe somebody like Christopher, have that type of conversation. I think part of it is also wrapped up in a view of human anthropology. Like, how do you actually view human beings, right? If you mm -hmm. view them as spirit, mind, physical, like body, right, this sort of um, person around those different facets, you're going to view it in a different way than you do if you maybe are not sort of equipped for a transcendent viewpoint around the human anthropology that Christians believe in, right? If you believe that everything is a physical or electrical spark or some hormone or some whatever, mm -hmm. it's real easy to go, yeah, you're talking about a $20 million inheritance. That's clearly fabricated. You've got a problem. You got to take a pill. You got to figure it out. Right. We got to get you a service, which all of them may be part of the solution, but ultimately misses the mark. At least absolutely. that's what I found. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's what I call, you know, transactional versus relational. You know, it's we can when you only look at a component of something, then then you lack really understanding the fullness of what's going on. And and to your point, um, looking at the person as body, mind and spirit and and creating a model of care for that person that helps with all of the, the fullness, the completeness of the person. When you just you know, when you put somebody in a tiny home and then you tell them that they can have mental health access and food, that's great. But what they really need is they need somebody that's a good, healthy relationship because that is what all of the homeless lack. They've built relationships out there. I had lots of relationships when I was homeless. I had what I called my family. I had my own family out there that I would have died for. You know, they were unhealthy. That's what they were. And that's what's happening. There's lots of relationships that the homeless are having, but they're unhealthy relationships. And that's the key to helping them is to, you know, yes, to shelter them. Definitely. Let's put a roof over their head. Let's fill their belly. Let's pay their cell phone bill. Let's, you know, let's get them what they need immediately. Let's definitely do that. But what else do, what, what do, that's just the, that's just the little component, the little piece of what they need. What they need more is they need unconditional love. They need a healthy relationship. They need somebody to say, it doesn't matter what you do, you're worth something. You're, you, you have dignity that nobody can take away from you. And I want to have a relationship with you that shows you just how much you're loved and how much you're worth. That is what heals homelessness. That is what helps somebody come out of that alternate reality and start to believe something else, right? The, the power of God's love through, oh, you know, that healthy relationship is what helps somebody say, you know, let's take Christopher, for instance, you know, say, you know what? I don't think my girlfriend's ever coming back, but that's okay. Right. And he can let go of that. And he can let go of that. But he's not going to let go of that unless he has it somewhere else mm. that's more powerful. That's another thing for me that I've learned is this idea that no matter what you do, right, that's so foreign to how we think about helping and being of service in a transactional or secular mindset. It becomes more natural when we're thinking about it transcendently, transcendently or from a Christian perspective, right? So the idea that 
I know that you may fall back down. I know that you may continue to have trouble. I know that you may go from crisis to transitional to permanent housing and then back again. And despite all that, I will still be here. I'll still be there. That's revolutionary to a lot of people when they hear that kind of thing. Like, I can't make that kind of commitment. That's crazy. I mean, I just want to write a check. I just want to do this one thing. How do you even begin to explain to people what that is? Well, I mean, there's all those kinds of people, you know, are a part of Sofisa, right? We do have the, the person who writes the check. God bless them. We need the check, you know? We can't force somebody into a place where we would like for them to be, you know, that we even know is probably better for them. We have to just meet people where they are and then do what we can to help, you know, move them to where, you know, God is calling them to be. Like I can't, if somebody wants to write a check and that's it, then that's fine. Okay. But the, but for the one who writes the check and goes, here's a, here's another check, but I feel like I should be doing more. Bam. There we go great let's see what else we can we have for you what's in your heart what are you thinking about what do you really want to do to help someone those are the types of conversations that we've been having since covid with people who've reached out to us you know people who are like i see them i want to do something i've had community members go you know hey jess i'm gonna go encounter this homeless person what should i say what should i do people are reaching out because they want to do it themselves I think that's the thing that, that COVID also did was they, they put the power back into each individual person's, you know, hands. I think we I think we were moving like robots before COVID where we worked, we dropped our kids off, we yeah. did this, we were moving yeah, like sure. robots and you know, and and helping somebody or doing something charitable was another just another check on the, check. Uh, another box to check. And I think what COVID did was COVID brought a lot of people into that awareness of like, mm, I can do something. I really can. And then when we say, absolutely, yes, you can, that's actually Sophisa's model, right? Sophisa doesn't want you to just dump a ton of money into us so that we get big and huge. It's never been what we wanted and it's not where we're going. What we want to do is we want to enable the normal, the average community member to look at the homeless, understand the truth behind homelessness, get the context of what that life really is, and then empower them to do something themselves, and then to share that with the next person. That's that's what we're trying to do. And it can be scary. I remember it for myself. I actually just gave this talk, um, you know, for USA Today, and I described you know, early days for me of going with you out to do street outreach, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years ago, interacting with people, going to some neighborhoods that like, you know, you got to get your head checked to be walking around in there and, <laughs> and yet encountering real people there, right? Encountering people, brothers and sisters, looking at them going like, wow, these are real people. And like, they're great in their own way, right? And they, they give you something, obviously, because that's how God works, is you do ministry, you get you get this sort of, you get to hear and feel and, and see his love, right? Mm-hmm. So all of those things happen, but I described it in this um, USA Today piece as, uh, you know, I, I kind of tied it to this movie that, you know, talks about, it's a, a movie that's based in India, and the idea that India can be very overwhelming, it can be an assault on the senses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you're a tourist, you're walking from here to there, and there's like 900 people trying to sell you something, and somebody's got a rickshaw that almost kills you, and it's just an assault <laughs> on the senses, right? 
But this the character in the movie says that, um, you know, it, it, you can think of it as like a wave, right? You can resist it mm-hmm. and it's going to hurt mm-hmm. and it's going to, you know, throw you and you're going to roll and it's not going to be pleasant. Or you can dive in and let it carry you. Mm-hmm. And I always think about that line when I think about the work that obviously you lead, but that I've been involved with in, in ministry to, to homeless brothers and sisters, because that's how I think about it. Once you go in, once you make that commitment to go into the water, to catch the wave, mm-hmm. it's really very natural, right? There's people that we've known for 15 years mm-hmm. that we've seen go great and not so great, and yet we're still there. And if you would have told me 15 years ago, hey, you're making a commitment to be with these, I would have probably run the other direction. Right, exactly. Right, but it's this idea of kind of like diving in and just having that faith and just going for it that... um you know, that I don't know, it just helps me kind of visualize what it takes. You know, it's it's, it's trust. Yeah. And, and obviously, I don't let people know that right. <laughs> when they volunteer. Right. <laughs> just cut the check. Cut so the check. I'm going to connect you with this family and they're probably not going to go anywhere for a long time. But here you go. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. We don't uh, we, we, we don't do that. What we encourage is looking next to you. And doing the next right and good thing and and living in that faith, right? Living in the faith that because you're doing the next good and righteous thing and because you've agreed to be that healthy relationship for somebody else, that all things from that are going to be um, good. Even when they don't feel like they're going right or not, you know, or not good at times, right? It's, it's the roller coaster of relationships in general. Um, and that's what we have with all of our families. And so that's what we say, you know, once in the Sofisa fam, always in the Sofisa always fam. Always in. Always in. It's like the mafia. No. <laughs> no. Is, that, is that wrong to say? <laughs> yes, that's wrong okay. to say, especially because my last name is De Lorenzo. <laughs> exactly. The De Lorenzo <laughs> clan, the Genoveses, the De Lorenzos. No. Um, so I know that it's probably all going to be in the book in Enormous Lives, but can you just give us, before we get to, I want to get to some of the practical things that you've learned. Mm-hmm. Uh, running Sofisa. Okay. I think it can be helpful not just to people who are in ministry and nonprofit work, but frankly for anybody in a leadership position. So I want to get to those three core insights that you talk about that you've learned. But before I do that, and I know it's going to be in the book, tell us about how you, what was the healthy relationship or relationships that you encountered? What were the circumstances that led you from that life that you had on the street? Well, there were people that I encountered who, who, didn't do things that were transactional. There were, I encountered tons of people that were, it was all transactional. Homeless people can like, we smell just, that out. we can smell that out immediately. Right. It's like, you know, when somebody wants something from you. Um, and there's few and far between people who, you know, are different than that. And one of those people was my aunt Cheryl. Um, I, I, I remember spending time with her a little bit when I was younger and, somehow she just always found a way to reach me. Um, I would be homeless living on the street. I'd go into the shelter for a couple of days and there'd be a birthday card for me, you know, from her that basic that had like a dollar or $2 in it that said, you're a beautiful person. I love you. Never forget how special you are. Right. So it's like little, I call them sprinkles of hope. So it's like little things like that really did keep me going. Um, that and, you know, I, I aged, 
you know, I became an adult while on the streets. So that was a huge difference. You know, turning 18 being, you know, opened up more jobs for me. Um, the relationship with my Nana, my dad's mom, uh, that was huge for me. Um, she tried to help me as much as she could in helping me find a job. And and so that relation, that was a healthy relationship. And then she she passed away. So that was really tragic for And then for she me. really got to work praying for you. Yes, she did. She brought you into my life, which was my next relationship, um, which was very shortly after I came out of homelessness but really, it was the first time out of homelessness. So when actually, I should say the way I came out of homelessness was basically using people. Unfortunately, it was having boyfriends that already had apartments and moving in with them. So it was okay. I'm living with this this boyfriend in order to have a roof over my head, and that never really turned out well because they were usually very abusive. Um, so the last boyfriend that I had had in that situation, um, was abusive. I got a restraining order against him and was able to put him out of the apartment. So that was the first time I ever had my own place on my own. And I had just given birth to my third child, um, which was, which is our daughter, Vanessa. And... So it was me, my first time, I was on welfare, I was poor as dirt, but had a roof over my head, um, brand new baby, and this was me. If you, if, if you were to knock on my door and say, are you having a rough life? I'd have looked at you and said, I'm on top of the world, <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm on top of the world. So I will always look back at that, at that time in that apartment as as my come up. That was definitely my come up. Um, how I got there was wrong, <laughs> but. And then this crazy copier salesman saw this uh, mom <laughs> formerly on the street on welfare and said, what a catch. Let's just dive right in. Wow. Right? If only it were that easy. <laughs> mm. Well, that's another that's another that's story a, yeah, for a different a, podcast. That's a different podcast. But um But nothing will be impossible for God. That is for sure. That is right. That's right. But um yes, yeah, so I can include you in as the main healthy relationship nice. that allowed me to come out of my alternate reality. <laughs> and um maybe and, I'll get a chapter in your book. We'll maybe, see. We'll see what maybe, happens. Maybe. Okay, practical stuff. Okay. Uh, let's turn to the practical things mm-hmm. that we that, that um, again. You talk about three core insights, and we'll wrap the episode with this. Mm-hmm. Three core insights that you've actually picked up being on the street. Obviously, they or, and working in ministry with the homeless. But I think these work for anybody doing ministry, anybody doing nonprofit work. But they're really, I think, great principles for anybody in any leadership position. Just. Anywhere, anytime, Anywhere, anyone. Anytime. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about them. Okay. Um, What's well, one? the first one is um, humans are sacred, right? No matter how much money you have, where you live, how much money you don't have, where you don't live, it doesn't matter what you do, what you say, what you've done, you know, none of that affects the sacredness of your person. Right. The human persons are sacred and they have dignity that no circumstance or person or anything else 
can remove from them. It's been given to them by God himself. Um, he created them in his image, and that is where we get that sacredness and dignity from. Let me ask you, because Sophisa is you know, obviously founded and run by people who live a faith-based life, mm -hmm. but nevertheless is really a secular kind of organization, right? In terms of its outreach, we don't, you don't go and say, hey, I'm with some a church and I'm here to help no. you, right? Yeah, no, no, no. And so I wonder when you talk about humans are sacred, we, you're talking to, you're saying humans are sacred to a lot of people who don't share your, our faith background, our view of the world, mm -hmm. a you know transcendent kind of view of reality. Like maybe they're, they fall outside of that. But ha have you had somebody say like, I, I don't buy that, I don't believe that? Or do you find that most people, even if they come from very different walks of life, still kind of understand that there is something different about human beings that we need to respect? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Even atheists that I've encountered will acknowledge that scientifically the human is a phenomenon. <laughs> So, you know, even people who don't attribute the sacredness of, of human beings to God do attribute just how phenomenal um, the human being is, even just scientifically. So it's I, I've never encountered somebody who disagreed with me that humans are sacred. Mm -hmm. I, I have run across um, quite a few people who think that humans are terrible um, and animals are better. Um. <laughs> well, we live in LA after all, right? <laughs> and I get that, and I do. I totally get that. I know that where that wound comes from. Um, but and animals are great, and yep, and they are. They absolutely are. I love our animals, um, Chulo and Duke. But um, but no, I I I don't usually ever encounter somebody having a problem with me saying humans are sacred. They they just get it, and that's the foundation, really. Mm -hmm. From there flow the other two, right? Mm hmm. Yeah. So yeah, number two is relationships are vital. Um, I spoke about this earlier in the podcast. It's that one healthy relationship that Sophisa tries to be. And we are trying to encourage the average community member to create, you know, to to want to encounter, to want to step into a relationship with the homeless community member. Right. So the person living in the house on our street is a neighbor to the person living in the tent in the park. Right. We all live in the same community. Our, our structures are different. And I'm sure our wounds um, and, and where that's led us is different. But we're all in the same community. And so having relationships with one another is what's vital. And juxtaposing maybe relational to transactional, like you mentioned earlier, which I think is key, right? There's this great temptation, and it's understandable, to want to be able to make an impact now, quickly, you know, take out your credit card and hit the little square thing on somebody's phone, and I made a donation, and let's go. And those things are good. They, they it's, it's, it's like saying, it's like, you know, feeding somebody or throwing a roof over their head. That's all good. We're not saying that's bad. But the idea of relational, I think, or relationship, which is what you mentioned as the second principle, really demands something different. It demands accompaniment. It demands walking with somebody, even if you're not giving them money. It demands sacrifice. Yeah, personal sacrifice, and not the kind that, that makes your bank account less. You know, that's it, it demands a, a sacrifice from you as a person, especially as a Christian, you know, and speaking in that, in that way. Because we know 
Homeless people know. We smell it a mile away, transactions. It's what happens. That is what homelessness is, is transactions. You know, you ask any homeless person out there, it's like, how many times have somebody asked them what their name was today? You know, like, or can I have a dollar? You hold up a sign and somebody will give them a dollar. How many people actually ask them, but what's your name? Hmm. Where are you from? Or how many people told you their name. their name, right? Like how you ask a homeless person, how many people told you their name when they gave you that dollar or that food? You know, hey, I'm Jess. What's your name? Right? That's that's what starts the relationship. That's what starts it. That, that, that's, that's what keeps it from seeming transactional. Now, anybody like who who's an outreach worker can go out on the street and learn that and say, oh, this is going to be a part of what I do. But it's like a tactic at that but point. But it's a tactic at that point. Yeah. It's it, authentic and genuine. But the crazy thing is that's how every relationship starts. Mm-hmm. Right? You walk mm-hmm. across the room or whatever it may be. Hi, I'm Charlie. What's your name? I mean... We do. It's not like people don't know how to do this. We just did it yesterday with our new back neighbors. That's true. We did. I did it reluctantly, but you <laughs> dragged me there. <laughs> it was a perfect day to meet our new back neighbors. That's right. Fourth of July is a good good time to meet new neighbors. But, yes. But um, I guess my point is that it's it's not hard to do. It's easy, and it goes a long way. Well, it's hard to do for some people. Yeah. You even said you went reluctantly. That's true. It is hard to do for some people. There's, I mean, it's, for me, it's kind of maybe a little bit of a paradox because it's harder for me to do it when the person has a, you know, big old house and a Tesla in the driveway, but it's really, (laughs) it's real easy for me to do it when the guy's in a tent. Did they have a Tesla? I don't know. know. I'm just making that up for for effect. They probably have a Tesla. They look like (laughs) Tesla people. (laughs) I don't think so. Okay. So relationships are vital. Mm -hmm. And again, think of this from, you know, any perspective, a business perspective. Yeah, you can have plenty of transactions, but if you really want to build relationships that are valuable or, and, and something that is worth a lot more and has more value, in any context, relationship is a powerful medium to that yep, end. Absolutely. What's last? Uh, last is you're the answer. Me? Mm-hmm. How's that work out? Yeah. You're the answer. I mean, it goes along the lines of, you know, again, you look to your left, you look to your right, and whoever's next to you, that's who you help. You know, it's this this community level, ground root level you know, all the way at the bottom where it's happening level of solving the problem, right? So it's, do we wait for United Way or the Salvation Army to fully open up before we can go volunteer? Or do we connect with a smaller ground roots organization and learn some tools and tactics and how we can personally as an individual help the person next to us? Obviously, we don't talk about this and you don't talk about this, Um you know, in terms of the marketing or whatever it is, but these principles are Catholic social teaching, right? I mean, humans are sacred. That's the ground of all Catholic social thought. Mm -hmm. The idea that relationships are vital is the idea of solidarity. Mm -hmm. You're the answer or you're the solution is the principle of subsidiarity. The idea that the folks who are closest to to an issue are probably the ones best equipped to deal with that issue. So these things, it's deeply, deeply wedded to the way that you go out into the world and talk about this stuff, even if you don't brand it that way. Does it ever come up in conversations with people, this idea of like what the background is for some of these these ideas? 
No, not usually. I think people are just so drawn to the ideas because they haven't really heard them or faced them themselves. And they tend to think that it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I mean, that's the comments that I get the most. You know, that I'll have somebody call me or leave a message and say, hey, Jess, I just want to pick your brain for a couple minutes on this because it has to do with, you know, homelessness or the park situation or the council member, right? So it's something that, and I'll share with them my perspective. And at the end of the, yeah, it just makes so much sense when you say it. And so that's what I've encountered is, of course, it makes sense because it's not from me. It's not from Jess Echeverry. It's, you know, it's it's from God and it's from his church and it's from what he's given us to come again closer to know him, to love him and to serve him. That's what he's given us. And so if if Sophisa can share that in a way that doesn't hit somebody on over the head with, hey, we're Catholic, you know, like, because we're not a, a religious nonprofit. We are a secular nonprofit. But obviously who I am and the experiences that have happened to me are what, what you know, created and, and molded this into what it is. And so, and in that is, you know, my Catholic faith. And what I've learned about my own dignity and my own relationships and my own responsibility to my neighbor. I know that people ask you, I know that they ask you, what can I do? You know, <laughs> is, are the three principles kind of a shorthand for you of what they can do? Or is there something that you would just tell somebody if you're at, again, supermarket and they go, gee, that's awesome that you do this. What can I do? What's your, do you have a ready response for that kind of thing? How would you respond to that? What can I do? You can open your heart to serving somebody in need. Yeah, it's it's those three principles are what I share with people. And if you if you're ready to do that, then you go to our website, <laughs> and we'll help enable you to put that into action. You know yourself. We're really excited because you know this year the board is working on creating a lot more social content. Um, we're, we're trying to get these ideas, the, the context of being homeless, the experiences of being homeless. Um, hopefully we'll be able to get a podcast up and going where our families, you know, a lot of our families that we've had for many years and some even just a few years who are doing really well, they want to share their stories. And, and that's the beautiful thing about doing it this way, the way God created for us is that now these families, you know, especially the the women in these families are saying to me, hey, Jess, I want to help. I want to go out there with you. I want to talk to this person. I know what this feels like. So it's it's creating more of me in a sense, not me as Jess Etchuary, but me as someone with lived experience who's been healed, redeemed, and transformed because that is what we need more of. Mm. And I'm sure that that is what people want to see more of are people who were previously homeless who have been healed, transformed, and redeemed, and who are now out there helping those that are in need as well. Amen. How can people follow your work and follow the work of Sophisa and anything else you want to share? Uh, our website, uh, sophisa.org. We're on social media, um, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter. Um, just follow all those. You can always reach out to me personally, jess at sophisa.org. Um, all of those ways. And what about your book? 
Previous, uh, past book and upcoming. Um, uh, yes, my first book is Dazzled, Finding the Key to Perfect Forgiveness. You can find that on my website, mamaletics.com. It's my personal ministry website, my speaking ministry. And I am currently in the process of writing my second book called Enormous Lives, um, which will detail certain aspects of my own personal experiences being homeless, as well as tell some stories of some of the families we've encountered through Sofisa and also practical ways that just the average community member can engage themselves in helping the homeless. Awesome. Normally, we close the episodes with a rapid fire series of questions. Oh, I forgot about that, those. <laughs> well, the, well, here's a here's the dilemma. We close the episode with rapid fire questions that I don't know the answer to, and neither does the guest. In, in this case, it is impossible for me to ask you questions that would somehow either surprise you or that I don't know the answer to. So in the spirit of doing things authentically, we'll close this particular episode in a different way. And I'll allow you just, you know, whatever time you want to share with anybody listening to this episode, any kind of parting words or thoughts. You don't. Okay. That's fine. Do you know how many times I get asked to do that? Okay, then no. And no, but I I'm feel... I'm not going to do the unoriginal thing then. No, but I feel like, you know, when people do that to me, I feel like I just poured out my heart it in an interview. It <laughs> like, clearly And that was it not... wasn't good enough and like I need to top all that. It clearly wasn't good enough. You have to you have to really dig deep this time and do something completely <laughs> new. All right, actually, make it, you know, be very novel if you just said absolutely nothing. It's all there. It's been recorded over the last hour, so people will need to take from it what they will. If That's that, right. If that is what it is, that is what it That's is. That's right. That's awesome. what it is. Well, my darling, my love, my yes. wife, it's been great to have you on this episode of Living the Call. And um, may God continue to prosper your ministries and uh, make your message go out far and wide into the whole world. That's my prayer. Thank you so much. I great, love you. Great to have you. I love you too. <laughs> and we'll see all of you. Please remember to subscribe. Uh, go and hit that subscribe button. Share this episode with your friends. Tell your family. Share it on social media. Do what you got to do to get the word out there about this episode. Lots of conversations like this. Um, so please remember to subscribe and we'll see you again next time on another episode of Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-USA.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Kasten and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.